Hi, I'm Mike Sibley, leader of the James Moore Manufacturing Team. I'm here with Kevin Golden, one of my partners and a member of the James Moore Manufacturing Team. So, uh, Kevin, welcome back to the show. Glad to have you on here to share some of your expertise with us. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I'm grateful to be back for yet another great episode. Great. Well, today on our episode, we're going to be discussing some updates, reminders, as well as some concerns that continue to pop up. Uh, related to our clients, discussions we're having clients, even newsworthy items in some cases. We're going to talk about uh, the some new requirements on R&D costs. We've hit them before in the past a little bit. I think it's worth revisiting some of these just because, again, they continue to uh, continue to have questions and surprises that um, clients still have. We're going to talk a little bit again about the lease accounting standards that have come out. And then finally, a little bit on the employee retention credit. Again, some concerns we're seeing, some questions, and and I think some general, hey, be careful when you approach uh, or you get approached by some some aggressive companies out there that that we've seen quite a bit of, and you know most clients have been pretty wary, but we want to talk about a few things um, in, in that regard as well. So, Kevin, let's uh, let's start off with the R and D side of things. Uh, it's this isn't necessarily the R and D credit. But we're talking about R&D costs and what impact they have. And again, it's it's catching some off guard. And we want to make sure that, again, we, we everybody understands what's happening in that area. So why don't you, if you can, take us through what's going on there? Sure, sure. Yeah. So like Mike said, we're not going to go a whole lot into the R&D credit. That really didn't change. We've got a lot of questions about that. Nothing really changed on that end. If you're used to taking that R&D credit, the calculation and things that go into that, you're familiar with that. So nothing really on that end changed. What actually changed was something all the way back to earlier in 2022, where it was proposed that, or regulations passed that said, hey, expenses related to the R&D credit, right, now have to be capitalized. So let's go over old rules when you're taking the R&D credit, and even if you weren't, those expenses associated with that, you could deduct those immediately, right? In the year incurred. Well, now they went out, uh, the IRS said, well, we have to recognize those over a five-year period now. So what does that mean? That means taking away your deduction immediately and spreading it out over five years. It was something that, you know, again, it was passed back in 2022. Um, all the R&D professionals, ourselves, and a lot of people in the industry all thought, well, hey, this is going to go away. This is not what clearly neither side of the political field wanted. They didn't want that as an answer. They liked the answer, the, incur the great things that did for the economy. But they couldn't agree, like most times, on a lot of the smaller things that then this happened to be in the crossfire. And it's something, again, we thought would go away. We wouldn't have to deal with it. But then as the year went on, and especially as we got into November, December, um, it is definitely around to stay. And there's no signs that it is going to go away, right? So some things to consider. First of all, if you're someone out there who says, well, I've taken the R&D credit. Well, this will definitely impact you, right? Anyone who's in that field of maybe you have significant amount of research and development type costs. Uh, and it's not just the cost directly involved like you would think of for the study either. It's things like overhead. I mean, the IRS is trying to say, hey, that's tied to those R&D in some way, shape, or form. So now you have to go through and try to capture some of those overhead type expenses to now capitalize as well. So it's not just your direct costs like your supplies or your uh, wages or your contract labor, um, but other some overhead as well may get caught up in that. Again, it's, it's made it unfortunately a little bit more complicated and the direct impact to most of our clients is that, hey, some expenses I can normally deduct whether I took the credit or not, 
Now I can only deduct a portion of those and the rest of that's going to be spread out over a five-year period. Um, some things that we're kind of advising and telling people about, one, there is always the chance that perhaps it will, you know, go away. Perhaps it will be overturned. We don't see foresee that happening in the next probably four to six months, but it's not to say that it wouldn't, right? So one option is to say, hey, maybe you should extend your tax return, right? Maybe you should just hold off on finalizing everything yet. Maybe get it on the verge of finalizing, but don't quite push the button just yet. See what happens. If it ends up being in your favor, great. Then you can, uh, you know, you can always make tweaks and adjust before you file. If not, and of course, if this goes on like government tends to do, it may go well beyond the filing season in the fall, uh, which is September or October for most taxpayers, and therefore um, you're going to need to file anyways. But that is one option, right? Um, another option is just to go ahead and file the way it is, right? You know, with the law the way it states, the best attempt, talk with your professional, file that way. If they do overturn it, you may have to amend a return or something, but at least then, again, you are, um, you know, you're in compliance with the laws as they state today. But again, it's, it's not the R&D credit itself, but really all these expenses associated with it, we kind of took for granted that you can just deduct those that now, again, only a portion of those are able to be deducted. There's a lot more detail uh, in those and what uh, expenses could be exposed to that. If you're someone who maybe hasn't done a whole lot of research development and all, it may not be as impacted, but again, you may be more impacted than you think because of these other type of overhead costs that aren't in your traditional R&D realm that might now get captured underneath this. So something just to be aware of and to be on the lookout for, um, especially if you're used to taking and you, and you know you have a lot of those research and development type uh, expenses. Yeah, that, and the great points, and thank you for great job summarizing that. And you know, it's, it, those, these are items that we're talking to our clients about now, but obviously we're still continuing to uh, talk to clients. The same exact thing that you said, you can file now, you can extend and hope for the best, but at this point, uh, you know, it doesn't look like anything's going to change there. That said, just to be very, very clear, you can still take the R&D credit it's just the deduction that went around went with it in the past. So you in the past you did get this net credit and this deduction. Now we're going to take the deduction and spread it out. You can kind of think about it like depreciation. And so um, really to add to that, Mike, even that makes the credit even more valuable now, right? right? Like we're not able, regardless of whether you take the credit, this may apply to you. You can't deduct mm -hmm. all these. So if you're th on the verge of maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't have gone and done like a study or uh, taken that credit, now mm -hmm. might be a great time to do it. Because again, this law or this rule is going to apply to you anyways. That makes the credit even more valuable to help offset or minimize some of that impact it may have to you. Well, I think one last thing too is the IRS hasn't really issued a whole lot of guidance on this. Right. So it's possible that some of the ways we're handling things right now can evolve and change, uh, you know, in the next year or two, or you know, as this as this thing. As we get more guidance, usually these regs come out and then guidance falls at some point. Sometimes the guidance changes what you do down the road. So this is going to be potentially one of those circumstances where how we're handling it now may be a little different than how we're handling it a year from now. Yeah. All right. So uh, next thing I wanted to talk about was the lease accounting standards. So we're going to get out of tax realm for a minute here and go over to generally accepted accounting principles. So if you're a business that has to file what we call gap financial statements, gap means generally accepted accounting principles because your bank requires you to, usually you're going to see a compiled or reviewed or an audited set of financial statements 
Well, these the, the lease standards actually came out quite a few years ago, but they're required to be adopted for private companies for years ending after December 15th. And we've been talking about this for a good two years um, now, and it's still, still something that I think some are being caught off guard with. And here's what the deal is, is let's take your, in the past, if you had what we call the capital lease, and that's a lease that's like, almost like you're financing it effectively. It would be on your balance sheet as an asset and a liability, like a fixed asset that you basically borrowed money from a financial institution to pay for. Because generally speaking, by the time that lease was over, you owned it. Then there are things like operating leases. And these are leases that don't go on your balance sheet. They're, they're usually something like the rent you pay for your building. And that rent, we would expense it as you go. And everything was great. We would put in the notes to the financial statements that, hey, you got this, you got this lease out there and you're committed on this lease for the next five years. Well, the, the standards changed and said, hey, those operating leases, not only those capital leases, but those operating leases now belong on your balance sheet. So we have to put this right of use asset. So let's pretend you got a building that you're renting for a million dollars a year for the next five years. We're going to take that five million dollars. We're going to present value it back and we're going to put an asset on your books and a liability for the debt payments on the rent. That's where it's starting to catch a little bit of people again on surprise because oftentimes in those bank covenants, you might have debt service covenants that you have to meet. And right now, even the banks, the financial institutions are trying to figure out what they're going to do with these covenants. And we're trying to get out in front of it with clients to say, hey, we got to talk to our financial institution partners uh, and see, hey, how is this going to impact? Maybe they're going to give you a waiver for it. And that's some of what I've heard. Uh, but it's something that we want to be, again, jumping in front of. I don't want anybody to be surprised. But as you're in February and March now and you're having your financial statements worked on, it impacts and it could have a detrimental impact or at least a discussion impact on your uh, banking relationship to make sure that they're on board with what's going on. Uh, the funny thing about this is it has zero impact on your PL. It's not going to change a single thing. Uh, and oftentimes I get asked, well, where'd this come from? And really it came from, you know, investors, a much larger company saying, hey, you've got off balance sheet liabilities with these leases. Well, I, I think the argument is though they were disclosed. So, you know, read the notes of the financials, you know, they're there. But as far as they're concerned, you know, when they came out with this is like, hey, you're committed on this $5 million over the next five years. So it's a liability that you're not getting out of it if there's enforceability on both sides. Now, there's a bunch of caveats, a bunch of exceptions, but, you know, and, and we have to work through those. But each lease has to be looked at, evaluated, look at the portion that's part of the lease and the portion that's not, if applicable. So it's, it's got a lot of complexities to it. It takes a lot of time. Um, but again, it's still a conversation topic that's coming up. And on top of that, um, you know, there's the potential for impact with your banking institution. So I, I want to keep throwing that out there until it becomes kind of mainstream a little bit. So, so you're not surprised that if you haven't started working with your accountant yet this year for uh, 1231, hey, this thing's coming out there and, and, and you need to be talking about it and you need to be um getting prepared for that. Now, if you have no leases, great, you're, you're good to go. Uh, if you have, you know, a bunch of very short-term leases, you know, you got a month, a day one here, a month one there, you're probably okay. But if you've got these long-term leases, uh, potentially you, you've got 
uh, some more issues coming your way to have to deal with. Well, and Mike, like you said, I mean, there's no, let's talk about tax for a second. There's no impact really over on there, right? There's no impact. And again, it's a financial statement reporting. A lot of the impact we're seeing, even if you have a good CPA or provider who is aware, has been talking with you about that, the unintended consequences, hey, the fallout of what, like Mike said, what are the banks and other third parties that are looking at these financials and how they're evaluating and looking at them? Are they aware of that? Do they know that to take that into account when they're analyzing you for loans, analyzing for value or whatnot in your company? Um, so again, that's more of probably the bigger concern uh, in addition to just to doing the, you know, making sure your financials are correct and disclosing this properly. So. Yeah, we've already seen third parties reach out and say, whoa, what is this big asset and this, this new liability that's on your books for $2 million? I was like, well, hold on, calm, calm down. Let's walk through that like oh we didn't we didn't realize and um you know so some of those things and so that's why you know i think not only do you have to be prepared for this and, you, and you're right kevin it has no impact on tax really so you know it's it's really a financial statement component and disclosure so there's a lot of work to get it set up right to get the reporting right and then there's the, the piece to talk to your third any third parties that are going to be looking at your financial statements having that advanced conversation and say hey Oh, by the way, so that way they don't see, you know, uh, the the present value of some lease on a building that you've got signed for the next 20 years, all of a sudden, all of a sudden showing up on your balance sheet. So, you know, trying to just continue to get out in front of that uh, to make sure that you just head off any issues or at least not scare anybody when you see see these things pop up. All right, so. Uh, the last thing we really wanted to hit on is the ERC. So this is the employee retention credit. And I, I think at this point, I don't know that I have talked to any business owner who doesn't get at least emails a day saying, hey, you probably qualify and, you know, let us help you out. And you know what? That, that's great. And it may be that, and there are a lot of companies that qualified. And the, the basics of it were, you know, this is to help companies who are really negatively impacted um, by the pandemic through either loss of revenue, uh, government ordered shutdown, and you know things of that nature. And so they they put out these rules and in combination with the PPP and said, hey, you you might qualify to earn these credits back. And basically the way it is, you amend your payroll tax returns and you get this refund. And of course you have to claim it as income. I think everybody's well aware of that. The concern is that what popped out of this are some aggressive pop-up companies that are claiming to be experts in the ERTC, the Employee Retention Tax Credit, basically saying you qualify. And there are certain qualifiers. Your, your revenue had to have a substantial decree decline or you had to be shut down because of a government order. And that government order thing goes off into a lot of different tangents as to what this means. This is not just a, hey, answer three questions and we can, we can get you qualified, right? So there's a revenue or a shutdown and then the shutdown goes off into a lot of tangents. Now here's what we're seeing. We're seeing these firms come out and say, hey, did you have supply chain issues? Yes, I did. Of course, everybody had supply chain issues, um, despite the fact that the revenues may have gone up at the best rate ever or whatever. Um, 
they were just hearing, hey, yes, I do. But they're not going into the next steps that you have to take. They're just saying, okay, you said yes, we're going to calculate and you're getting a big number and let's go from there. And so, you know, beyond just having supply chain issues, there's, there's the, the backup fact of, well, were those suppliers shut down because of a government order? There's other pieces that how do you, how do you, uh, how did it impact your business and was it substantial? And so there's a lot of qualifiers, even to the point where the IRS put out uh, a Q&A. It's a very, pretty long document that has a lot of Q&A stuff on it. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some very good companies out there that are doing some great work, um, but it, it's just a warning. And so what's happened is the American Institute of CPAs has come out. The IRS has come out and said, hey, we are going to target these e ERTC claims. I don't know how they're going to do it. I don't know what part of my guess is they may look at companies that had increases in revenue and claimed an ERTC. I don't know. I'm just speculating there. But I'd be really, really careful about evaluating um, you know, these ERTC credits. Now, I know a lot of CPAs are not calculating, they're not doing this, they're not going down this road because it's complicated. Um, there's pieces to it, but generally speaking, we can talk high level and help on understanding what some of these things mean. And, and you may need to even, if it's a big enough credit, want to talk to a tax attorney to help make sure that you're staying within the legal guidelines of this. And, you know, and make sure that you're doing the documentation to support these things based on what the law says. So that way you can put yourself in a good spot if you get audited by their IRS. So Kevin, I don't know if you want to add anything on that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I can this a lot on a smaller level, but to a lot of the Affordable Care Act. Remember when the Affordable Care Act came out that says, hey, everyone's got to have health insurance now if you don't already have it, right? Everyone was rushing to the marketplaces, other places to get it. And what happened? There were salesmen and different people who went around person to person saying, hey, you could qualify for twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 worth of premiums to help you pay for your health insurance. You just need to sign here and answer a few questions, right? Mm -hmm. People, of course, said, well, that sounds easy. Uh, yeah, health insurance is expensive. We all know that. I'll take it. And what happened is whenever they got done, if you know that process, is if you take a subsidy from the government, it's based on your income. And they true it up. When you file your tax return right now, when you're filing your tax return, if you took a subsidy last year, they're truing that up and saying, did you take too much or too little? If you took too much, guess what? They want it back. That's mm -hmm. kind of the same thing we're seeing here. There are legitimate, as Mike said, there's legitimate companies out there who legitimately can qualify for this under what we would call a facts and circumstances. It isn't a, a substantial decline in revenue, but other facts and circumstances allow me to. But one, kind of use your gut, use some common sense. Is what they're saying even makes sense to you? If they can't explain it to you, how are they going to explain it to you know an IRS agent, which I guarantee you may know as much as you or even less in some situations. Um, whenever they, and if, and if the IRS doesn't understand it, guess what they're going to do? They're going to say no. Right. Um, number two is you, you have to be familiar or, or comfortable with that stance they're taking because you're the one ultimately responsible for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. They have agreements and things like that that say, okay, if you get under, you know, uh, an IRS audit, we're going to be there to help you and so forth through that. But guess what? It's still your money. It's still your, uh, on the line. Who's got to pay it back? You do. Right. Um, and so, um, also some other things to keep in mind, there are some mitigating factors of this that, Hey, oh my gosh, I hear I can get 400, 500, $600,000. Well, what's going to mitigate that to maybe help you make that decision. Number one, 
Um, Mike hinted at this earlier, but you're going to have to, when you file this, this is for 2020 and 2021, up through the third quarter of 2021. You're going to have to go back and amend your 2020 and 2021 ta business tax returns and then probably the individual tax returns if you're, if you're a pass-through entity, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got like, that cost, that compliance cost. The company that's doing it for you, we've seen on average is probably about 15% of whatever you get. They're taking off the top, right? Uh, so you've got that cost. Not to mention the cost of if you do get audited or something in the future, um, that cost and the potential cost if it's overturned of, you know, now undoing all that that was done. Right. So, again, it, we're not saying that you shouldn't look into it. We're not saying that, you know, you may not that you don't qualify. You absolutely may qualify. We're just kind of giving you that buyer beware. The IRS is aware of these things, um, much like other hot topics they have that they look out for constantly. This is one of those things. Um, but just be comfortable and kind of use some common sense. That's where I think, you know, the trusted advisors around you, your accountant, your banker, your wealth advisor can help you kind of sift through that. And we've had those conversations with people all the time, but just mm -hmm. kind of be aware of that and, and make sure you kind of know what you're getting yourself into um, when you do that um, and that you kind of know all the strings attached. Last thing I want to mention, the IRS normally on a tax return you file, there's a three-year statute of limitations. That's been extended out to five years for these claims, right? Because the IRS knows out there, just like on PPP, there's good ones and there's bad ones. Mm -hmm. Same thing. And they're giving themselves enough time to go out and find them. So just just be aware of all those facts and circumstances. Yeah, those those are great, great points, Kevin. And, and Kevin and I, neither one of us are experts at ERTC by any stretch. We're just in and around it enough to know some of the things that are worrisome. Uh, like Kevin said, just to reiterate, you may very well qualify. There's some very good companies out there. What I would suggest is if, you know, the revenue aspect is actually kind of easy to, to some degree, but, you know, there's an aggregation factor. So if you own multiple companies, you got to look at multiple companies, right? But if it goes beyond the revenue and, and you're getting into supply chain and some of these other things that can also qualify you, make sure the company is helping you document for your files how you qualified and met those exceptions. Don't just don't just let them answer some questions at a high level and say, okay, you qualify, here's the calculation, go ahead and uh, file away. Have them help you, get, get prepared in case you do get audited, protect yourself. That's really what our message is today is protect yourself uh, from you know, the potential of the future down the road. Because even if you legitimately get it and the IRS comes in, you're still gonna have to substantiate and support why you were able to take it. And the last thing you need is a company that may or may not be around anymore that's not there to help you support it. So uh, it, it's really just more of a reminder on that side. All right, Kevin, so we, we, hit, a, we hit a mouthful today of, of great news and joy that we brought, but you know, really, again, looking out for, for businesses. That, that was kind of the purpose of today is really looking out, be proactive, and um, you know, make make sure you have things in order, documentation in order to support what you have. So, I appreciate everybody who listened today. Uh, looking forward to uh, the next month's episode, and I hope you all have a great day. To learn more about James Moore and Company's manufacturing services, go to jmco.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our More on Manufacturing series to receive updates when new videos and podcasts are released. If you'd like to be a guest, or if there's a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, contact us on our website. You can also follow us on social media for more news as the landscape on manufacturing continues to rapidly evolve. Thank you.